Is there one perfect story out there that's just objectively better than all the others? And if that story does exist, will it be written by an AI? It seems like a strange question, but the reason I'm asking is because that's exactly what happens in our episode's story. I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. So, if you know your Chinese sci-fi, you'll know that our story for this episode is by Fei Dao. It's the storytelling robot, and to discuss that story with me, I have as a guest Matt Michelson from the Spectology Podcast. You'll hear from him in a sec. Before we hear from him, I'd like to do not just the plugs, but also a little message to some, I guess, very special listeners. So I host this podcast on SoundCloud, and doing that gives me access to an app made by SoundCloud called Pulse, which gives me a lot of uh, statistics about not just how many plays I get, but where my plays and downloads and whatnot are coming from. And it breaks it down, it can break it down by city and by country with little flag, national flag emojis, which always amuse me. So I like to scroll through and have a look at the places that are getting smaller numbers of listens. So obviously places like London and the UK, US, they score high. But if I scroll down, I get to see where in the non-English speaking world people are listening. So I'd like to say hi to my listener in the city of Suleymaniyah, I think it's pronounced, in Iraq. I know there's at least one of you. Um, for you guys who hadn't heard of that, like me until very recently, it's a south, it's a city in the southern Kurdish region of Iraq. It's, according to Wikipedia, it's uh, safe, it's relatively liberal, it's economically quite strong, and because of that, it's got a fairly newish Chinatown with a population of 500 people, which leads me to surmise that my Iraqi listener is either Kurdish or Chinese or perhaps something in between, or connected to this Chinatown in some other way. If you're listening, I'd love to hear from you, uh, my listener in Suleymaniya. I've also got uh, at least one listener in Lima in Peru. Hello. And I know because of some attention the show got on Twitter and then corresponding stats on SoundCloud, I've got some new listeners in Japan. So hi, hello to you guys. Fantastic that you're listening and I hope you stay with us as we go through this um, sci-fi season and beyond. And hi to all the new uh, the North American listeners who come from some towns with very strange names. Uh, Moose Jaw in Canada. Hello to our listener in Moose Jaw and in the US, Sugarland. That's not just me assigning a name to the whole country, there is actually there is actually a town in the States called Sugarland, which apparently houses one of my listeners. Yeah, that's that little spiel over. I just, I, I'd been tweeting hellos to these people, but who's to say that they would see that? So I thought I'd say it on the podcast. The usual plugs, of course, would be that you can support the show through Patreon to get access to bonus content or one-off uh, contributions on Buy Me A Coffee. Uh, also, another plug, I've made a link uh, tree page for the podcast which you can find quite easily on the podcast Instagram account or my Twitter. And the link tree just bunches together all the relevant links links for the show on one page in a very easy to click read format. So if you'd like to find a comprehensive list of everywhere where everything to do with this podcast exists, Linktree, um, linktree.com slash churchific, uh, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. That's the omni plug um, for all the other things I'd like to plug. Last little thing before we begin, we are maybe about midway through sci the uh, Trichific sci-fi season now. It's going really great. I've had more guests than I expected to have, and I'm getting a great reaction from listeners. So if sci-fi, Chinese sci-fi especially, is your thing, then 
do keep listening because the next two or three three episodes after this, if all goes according to plan, will also be about Chinese sci-fi and a different author every time with some very cool guests, of course. So all excitement, all is excitement here on the show. Um, I have definitely blabbed enough, so let us begin the interview with Mr. Michelson of the Spectology Podcast. So I'm on the show with Matt Michelson, and he's one half of Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. So name does what it says on the tin, I suppose. And <laughs> Matt isn't just the show. He's also, as far as I can tell, he's a big China slash Chinese literature slash maybe even Chinese language buff. So um, Matt, spare me um, talking out my, my backside. Uh, can you give us the elevator pitch for your podcast? And then bonus question, have you got a Chinese name? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Matt. Um, like uh, Angus pointed out, I'm half of Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. The other half is Adrian, who um, is also very cool, although his interests and expertise lies elsewhere. Um, so we are a podcast book club, so to speak. So every month we read a new book and we have at minimum one episode that's a sort of pre-read before we read the book where we talk about the kind of context of the book, what are some facts about the author, some facts about the genre, maybe what we think about this genre, what are our preconceptions and so on with no spoilers whatsoever. And then we definitely at least have a post-read episode where we go deep into the book, full spoilers, talk about all the details and what we thought about it and all those sorts of things. And typically we also have some kinds of other bonus episodes of various sorts. We've had a lot of guests and we do interviews occasionally. And um, then we also do silly stuff like we talk about things that we like in pop culture or um, we recently had a bonus episode where we fan cast <laughs> some books that we did, uh, which if you don't know, just means um, imagining that there's a film version of it and who would play who and who would oh, direct yes. and that sort of thing. <laughs> I know uh, a book is good, a novel is good when I'm doing that in my head on my own as I read. It's always a good sign. Oh, yeah. I actually am. I, I always thought that I was sort of bad at that for some reason. Like I, I would like struggle with it. But then I found as soon as I was talking about it, it you know, it's it comes pretty naturally. <laughs> mm. A second about me. Yeah. Also, because um, you asked, um, I am I, I like to think of myself as a sort of fan or a geek about literature and, and about China. I'm not like a an academic expert or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I was a Chinese major in university, so and I studied a lot of Chinese for many years, and I lived in China for for many years, and so I, I do know something about it. But I don't. I would never call myself an expert. Um, so please take things that I say with a grain of salt, and mm -hmm. you know, think of me as the way I think of me is is that I'm I'm a fan, and I'm like sort of just like enjoying talking about it and having fun with it. You know. Mm. Well, the the good thing is there are quite a lot of um, people who've. Uh, People who listen to the show, a lot of them are translators, and so they know the literary landscape, and they've done so-and-so Mandarin undergraduate degree or Asian studies degree or whatever. So if there's something I'm not sure of, I just ask the question into the mic, and enough people are listening now that a reply from an expert can materialize in one <laughs> box or the other. So you can make use of that service as well. There are some Excellent. lovely people who would probably be able to answer these kind of questions. Excellent. Um, I so, actually, and your final yeah. thing, just real quick, I do have a Chinese name. Oh, yes. Uh, it's uh, Mai Jiaming, <laughs> which was one. given to me by an old teacher. Not just like Mata or something. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's sort of a more Chinese y sort of name. It's very, people have told me sometimes that it's a bit too uh, sounding, which means it's a bit sort of, I don't know, rustic or country ish. Is that country, countryside ish? Too for Earth. Yes. Ah, earthy, an earthy name. Yeah, that's a slang word that means uh, it's occasionally used 
pejorative so it's mm. not necessarily a good thing to say but right <laughs> well nothing wrong with being in the countryside <laughs> so uh, on the topic of spectology and your two episode format that's how this little uh, guest spot for you has come about because i was i just wanted to see what else waste tide podcast related was out there after i put my episode up so i typed waste tight waste tight into the search bar of my player fm app that's the slightly crappy app i use for listening to podcasts and i think the only thing that came up was my own episode and then spectology's two waste tight episodes so the pre-read and then the read and the, the pre-read one is an excellent intro for um I guess probably most of our listeners wouldn't need this, but if you wanted to put someone on to like a all the background info you want before reading translated Chinese fiction, if you want to get a really good understanding of the context of these books and also kind of the context of what can happen in translation from Chinese into English, Matt's explanations to Adrian, his co-host, are excellent. Just wanted to say that. Um, but Thanks. also on this show, I've talked a wee bit about how this show came about from me seeing what the podcast about China landscape is like there out there on the internet. Uh, so do you have it? I'm sure you listen to lots of like books and literature podcasts. Have you got any favorite China podcasts that you listen to? Yeah, I mean, uh, I do love podcasts. What a surprise. I, I, I guess I sort of was thinking about this. And um, honestly, it's, you know, the sub China people who are the sort of the, oh, the, yes. the, the you know, Seneca is like the, the grand old podcast of, of like, sort of the last 15 years i guess mm. it hasn't been around that long I, I don't know exactly how long but not that long well maybe it, i don't know but it's a it's a great podcast seneca is terrific if you if you don't if you've never tried it it's um it's uh it's sort of an interview format there's a rotating cast of like the main two people are, are uh, jeremy goldcorn and kaiser Guo. who's um, both have a amazing voice well amusing voices yeah, they're really interesting people in general, too, yeah. uh, aside from the podcast. But the podcast is terrific, and they have really, really high-level, um, famous, interesting... They have a whole range of guests from, like, lots of different thing, dom domains mm -hmm. related to China. And everybody from, like, a you know, some of the most famous academics in the world to policymakers to tech entrepreneurs to mm -hmm. artists. They have they had Chen Xiaofan on at one point, actually, mm, many, many Leo, years ago. Ken Liu as well. Yeah. So um, it's a terrific podcast. It covers a lot of different kinds of topics. Um, it's an old school podcast, been around forever. Hopefully it'll stay around forever. And then Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn founded this company called SubChina, which uh, also has a bunch of other podcasts about China. And yeah, many of them are also very good. The Seneca Network, I think they call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, like a thing that I liked recently was, um, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, I think it's called the China Economic podcast or something i forget mm -hmm. which one but it's one of their one of the sub china podcasts okay um they did an interview with peter hessler and if you don't know who peter hessler is he is the author of rivertown and country driving and oracle bones which forms this sort of trilogy of nonfiction memoir books about his time in china mm. he's also a new yorker contributor longtime contributor and the author of a bunch of amazing pieces and a book about egypt and he's basically like one of the great narrative nonfiction writers, like mm. in English today, I think. I mean, he's like a, he's, he's wonderful. He's a wonderful person to read. I really like all of his, all of his work. Long interview with him. Highly recommended. Yeah. I would say as well, if you guys, if you've not listened to Seneca slash SubChina before and Jeremy Goldcorn is on, you've got to make sure your volume's not too high because he occasionally blurts something really loud into the <laughs> microphone. But that's part of the charm. 
Um, it, it very much is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Kaiser, you can. I don't know if I have him as followed or added as a friend, but if you listen long enough and you like Kaiser, he posts interesting stuff on Facebook too. Um, but not waffling on too long about that, I have a, a recommendation too uh, for anyone who was interested in the waist tide episode or has read waist tide and wants to learn about the real stuff that that's based on uh, south china morning post which is a hong kong newspaper which does a lot of good kind of mainland china stories they have a podcast as well called inside china which it, i think they don't post new episodes that re- regularly but they did f- a series of four just recently uh, called china's recycling revolution and if i was more prepared i would have the topics listed and in front of me and now i'm stalling to try and get them all but there's one on <laughs> hong kong uh am i going to get them in time no there's one on hong kong <laughs> and taiwan there's one in Shang- about recycling in shanghai i think the first one is especially relevant to waste tide because it's about the dragon sword policy where i think china started refusing certain kinds of waste from the developed economies of the world i.e mostly the west and i think that had a bit of a knock-on effect in southeast asia where they saw that you don't just have to accept the waste from all these countries you can refuse it and then see where it goes and supposedly i saw in the episode description that actually spurred some recycling i don't know extra resources or focus or innovation in the states where they couldn't just send this stuff away so they got better at recycling it so an interesting topic um i got a literary podcast to recommend as well for listeners and matt if you don't know this one you might like it uh, it's just it's nothing to do with this podcast at all i just like it so much it's called weird studies and it's got these two rather strange american men but they're very smart and they talk about the weird, weird fiction, uh, which kind of stems from things like Lovecraft, old ghost stories by the likes of Arthur Mackin. They talk about uh, music a lot. One of them is a music academic. Uh, things like David Lynch, the philosophy of walking, Gnosticism. I can't really do it justice, but that's a really interesting one. Uh, Matt, do you have any like one literature podcast that you really enjoy that you could recommend? Oh, man. Literature podcasts. Or, or a book. Um... Or a book less fancy word book podcast well it's it's funny because so you know i actually don't this is like a little weird but i i actually don't listen to literature podcasts all that often my favorite kinds of podcasts mm-hmm. tend to be sort of either history narratives or or um in long form interviews but uh mm. i think reading the end is they're they're sort of friends friends of ours um and so i oh, would okay. definitely recommend that if you haven't heard of it reading the end is a podcast by the two jennies whiskey jenny and gin jenny Okay. And uh, they read books and they talk about them and it's great. Um, they like they read all kinds of books. There's no real sort of genre limitations and they um, are very knowledgeable about publishing and the industry and about um, I think, you know, every aspect of the literature industry <laughs> from the book to, uh, you know, to the companies. So it's a great podcast. Mm, fantastic. Um, I do think for 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 books. I find it to maybe be more suited in in podcasting anyway to read a book, stick the name of the book in search, and then find individual episodes by different podcasts. Because like if you were if I was subscribed to your book club podcast and then three other book clubs, can't read all the books. Right, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and from talking That's the to problem people, with that, books. yeah, no, exactly. And I actually do the same thing. And I think from talking to people who who um, listen to our podcast. Uh, a lot of folks will just listen to it without reading the book uh, at all. And mm. I actually find that I do that as well. Like I, I really enjoy parts of podcasts when they discuss books and they discuss literature. So 
like if, for, for instance like the recommendation section at the end of a Seneca episode um mm, yes. that's always that's always fun and actually that that reminds me there is one other one that i think um is people should know about if they don't because it's so good if folks haven't heard of, of the new book network it's um it's really, I yes. think it's a, it's a it's a pretty amazing thing, and in particular, of course, there's new books in East Asian studies, um, yes. and then there's um, you know. So what this is, the New Book Network is a is a network of a bunch of different podcasts that's produced by academics um, from a bunch of different, a sort of consortium of academics from a bunch of different disciplines from a bunch mm-hmm. of different uni- universities, and all they do is highlight new academic work in a range of different fields. And if you sort of go to their website and look at the top, the bar of links to the different fields that they cover is enormous. It's like every sort of discipline you could imagine. And like all of them have their own podcast and all of them talk about new interesting books that come out in that. So kind of whatever you're interested in, um, there's literature ones as well. And, uh, and it's really fascinating. And, And what you can do, of course, is you can just kind of like scroll through the backlog and see if any of the names pop out at you, see if there's an interesting book. Yes. And they're all interviews with the authors, and and it's just a, an amazing resource if you're interested in kind of exploring, uh, like looking for sort of deep books about topics you don't know anything about, and like all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, there was someone I spoke to at the Leeds Genre Fiction Conference I've mentioned in the past few episodes who'd hosted an episode on that, but I've completely forgotten who it was. But yeah, um, it's a good one. It's a bit of a lucky dip because you often get a different person on the microphone and there's a really big range of um, stuff they cover. I'd love to talk more, but we're 25 minutes in <laughs> and we're not talking. We're still talking about stuff we like to listen to online. Um, so as you guys may have guessed, this episode's not just about waste tide and weird studies and East Asian academia, East Asian studies academia. We've also got a story we're going to talk about and that story's writer and its translation. So the story is The Storytelling Robot. Its writer is Fei Dao, and its translator is Alec Ash, one of the best alliterated names I've encountered. Mm -hmm. So Matt Michelson, also of an alliterated name, um, how did you first encounter this story? Well, I encountered it because I saw the translation on China Channel, which is a project that's mm. done by the LA Review of Books. And that's also something highly recommended, you know, about Chinese fiction and Chinese translated fiction on the internet, although it's not audio. Alec Ash is the uh, editor of China Channel, um, mm. the managing editor. And, uh, you know, he's a very interesting character in his own right, who has a book out um, called Wish Lanterns, I think. Um, yes. And uh, so I, I saw his translation of this story there, and I immediately sort of glommed onto it because it was science fiction. It sort of seemed like it was science fiction, and indeed it is. Um, although we can talk yep. about, like, you know, to what extent we think it. I want to talk about that. Ah, yes. yes. Um, and uh, so I immediately read the translation, and then it, it's a short story. And so I, I um, you know, sometimes if it's a longer story, it will take me so long to read it in Chinese that I'll kind of put it off. But this is short enough that I that I went and I read the Chinese version, and uh, which you can find uh, on online. Um, although it also yeah. appears in in uh, in a collection of the same name. Um, yeah. And then I looked up the author Fei Dao, and 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 you know he's a he seems like a really interesting author and i read a couple of his other stories as well and it it this is a type of story that i really like and so i'm sure we'll talk more about the the details of it but but yeah this mm-hmm. is a particular kind of science fiction or or whatever you want to call it that, that i really like a lot and so <laughs> yeah we're, we're going to talk a bit more about alec ash and Fadal and like them as individuals and their uh relationship or whatever but i'll just say that um in my mind before i read this story i associated Fadal and alec ash like when when I thought of them, it was as a pair, 
um, with the exception of the one little essay Feidao wrote um, on Chinese science fiction. I think it's called Chinese Sci-Fi Embarrassing No More. But apart from that, I just knew of these guys tied together as one thing, although we'll, we'll get more into that in a bit. Um, so yeah, when you, when you suggested that this was the story we could do for our episode, because maybe because some of the more superstar uh, or more prominent translated Chinese sci-fi writers had been taken for other episodes. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you you know, I should say, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's an honor to be among such such <laughs> illustrious uh, company, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, indeed. But you are one of the illustrious company now. Um, so anyway, I, uh, Lu Yuan Zhao said the same thing and I had to keep reminding him that no, you're also as cool as these people. But yeah, um, as I was saying, I, I saw the name of this story, the storytelling robot, and I thought, wait a minute, this rings a bell. So I opened up my copy of Broken Stars, uh, Ken Liu's anthology, and saw that there's a Fei Dao story called The Robot Who Liked Telling liked to tell tall tales. So immediately I thought, wait a minute, are these two different translations of the same source story? So I read the English versions side by side. So the uh, the Ken Leo robot who liked to tell tall tales on the page of the book and the Alec Ash story, storytelling robot on my phone screen. And they were so different, I realized, or I kind of worked out, no, these can't be the same story. So there's two different stories by Fei Dao, both with a robot telling a story in the title and I guess they concern themselves with with a robot who tells stories. Um, so my question for you is: Have you or questions for you is: Have you read both these stories? Do you know anything about how they are or are not paired or connected in a, a deliberate or whatever way? And if you do know more, do you know more about Fade Out having even more of these robot story stories? So lots of questions there. Answer in any order you like. Yeah, yeah, I do know a little bit about it. Um, so I have read the other one. Um, those are the only two mm. Feidao robot stories that I've read, but my understanding is that there are more. He has a sort of a, I mean, so I read this great interview with Feidao that I don't think has been translated into English, but I can get oh, you the, the I can get you the link and and um, and you can you know check it out and and like you know mm. I, everyone is encouraged to check it out because it's a really really interesting in depth interview with Feidao from a couple of years ago, um, and the interviewer asks him a similar question. Um, ask him, you know, are do you have sort of series of stories? Because it seems like some of your stories are sort of loosely thematically connected, almost like a Asimov robot stories or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he says he says that he didn't intend that to be the case, but it did sort of turn out that way. And so he does have this mm. kind of like almost accidental series of robot stories. And uh, I found that really really interesting because oh sorry, there's one other thing he says um, also about his creative process, which is not in answer to the same question, but I thought it was interesting. He says that he is a big fan of uh, daydreaming and of just uh... kind of losing yourself in thought and just kind of taking flights of fancy and seeing where your mind goes. And that's the sort of writing that he loves to 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 make and to do. And um, indeed, you know, if you read his stories, you'll you'll sort of you'll see how 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 that makes a lot of sense um you know and and he is kind of he he kind of expresses a little bit of ambivalence about you know what that means for the sort of like larger significance of his writing but he also thinks that that sort of writing that sort of like fantastical um you know journey of imagination like you know i want like he gives this example of a daydream you know like i wonder what if the heavens had a physical form and like they actually felt like the sky is falling style and there was something that had to like catch them and hold them up 
you know what I mean? Like it's just like you're you're sitting mm-hmm. there looking out at the at the at the at the uh, you know trees outside, and you're just kind of wondering these random things, and then you, he makes these stories out of that. And um, shower thought sci-fi. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so he sort of talked about his his process in that way, and I thought that was interesting. And then the other thing that mm-hmm. I think about with regard to his robot stories is that he he mentions that um, they the 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 first one of them, which I'm not sure which one was first, but that he wrote first. Ah. Um, the first one that he wrote was inspired by him reading a foreign sci-fi author. He calls it, he says foreign sci-fi author. And in the interview, he doesn't remember who this person was. But in the foreign sci-fi story that he read uh, contained both kings and robots, he says. And that was like a pairing that he found really evocative. And so he wrote his own story. Um, oh, and I think, you know, as soon as I read the first of his stories, the first thing I thought of was Stanislaw Lem, um, and the, in particular, the Siberiad, which is a book of short stories that Stanislaw Lem wrote about robots that also has kings in it. Um, okay. And they're sort of like fairy stories about robots and technology. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't know Stanislaw Lem, he's the he's a Polish. Uh, he's no longer alive. He's a Polish science fiction author from the 20th century um, who right. uh, lived in in uh, in um, communist Poland for most of his life. Mm. And he wrote, among other things, the book Solaris, which was made into a couple of movies. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but he's an amazing author. His books are amazing. He's one of my favorite authors. And, uh, and so, you know, it makes sense that I would think of one of my favorite authors if he's, if there's any similarity at all, but actually I think it's really similar. Um, you may so have I wonder, solved the mystery. Yeah. I wonder. I'm not sure. I, you know, I can't be sure. Uh, Stanislaw Lem also has other books about robots, in particular, Mortal Engines. Um, but uh, right. so, I, you know, maybe one of those or, or 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 one of the stories in them. And anyway, a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of different, you know, <laughs> different thoughts about uh, the the different questions. <laughs> well, Alec Ash, if you're listening, uh, zap Faidawa message and see if see if Matt's right, because I think you might be onto something there. And it's it's um, it's cool that this. Uh, did Stanislaw did he write in Polish? Do you know? Yes, he or did. Was he writing? Um, <laughs> so I know I know that he's been translated into Chinese. Um, right. But what's interesting to me is so the, the Stanislaw Lem is known for his sort of formal experimentation with literature as well as for his his sort of very imaginative um, like visuals and plots and characters. Um, and mm-hmm. he was an incredibly brilliant person and a polymath interested in lots of different things and so his writing tends to be very very like i've read i don't know polish but i've read that it's extremely difficult to translate and the person who did the most famous english translations of for example the siberiad but also other books is a it was a phd in slavic studies um ah, right and the i i read a little of of some of the Chinese translation of one of the Siberiad stories just because I was curious about this and I my impression is that the Chinese translation at least the one that I saw was nowhere near as good as the English translation from Polish Mm. that that I saw and so that's an interesting I I really wonder about that because it's it seems like very difficult stuff to translate maybe mainly because like Stanislaw Lem invents a lot of words and he kind of has all these sort of puns involving like scientific terminology and like he he does these like very subtle satires of academic speak and stuff like that, and that stuff's mm-hmm. like super hard to. I don't even know how the guy who did it into English did it. I mean, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that might be a thing. If Liu Guanzhao is listening, this might be something he knows about because he's a specifically quite a, a sci-fi expert, whereas myself, 
not really just kind of a, a casual occasional reader um and i think most of our listeners are probably in the same boat but leo uh, leo guanjao if you're listening if you can help figure well if you can give us a little bit of insight about stanislaw in chinese that would be fantastic oh i would love um, to learn more about that that would be so cool yeah uh -huh. please yes quite an interesting rabbit hole moving swiftly on however uh, let's talk a bit more about the story of the storytelling robot so could you tell us in a nutshell what it's about all right it's about it's a sort of a fable and it it um it concerns an, an unnamed king in an unnamed country who loves listening to stories mm -hmm. and uh he kind of runs out of stories that he he always wants to hear a new story that he's never heard before and like the various courtiers and uh people of learning who are providing him with stories eventually kind of cease to satisfy him and so he has commissioned a, a robot that will be a better storyteller than any of the sort of people who have failed him and uh his court scientists build this this robot this storytelling robot and uh it is like a learning robot it sort of starts out not being particularly good at telling stories but it gets better and better and better and till finally it's better than any person and uh it is able to satisfy the king uh with its st stories and all the other people you know in the kingdom kind of are able to relax because the king is kind of a you know an asshole when he is not satisfied with his his latest story but at some point the king demands of the robot that it like the robot sort of i forget exactly what happens there's some moment where the, the robot is like temporarily unsatisfying and so the king demands of the robot that it tell him the most magnificent story in the world and i think it's because the stories are starting to get a bit stale or repetitive or he's mm -hmm. beginning to you know what i mean he can guess what's going to happen or something yeah 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 no that's you're yeah. right and uh and so he he demands he, he issues this new command to the robot tell me the most marvelous story in the world and um I guess I'm sort of going through the entire plot of this story, but but it's not a very long story. And, you know, I encourage everybody to, to, to check it out because it's it's really very short and it's a great read. And if you like it, you can move on to the other uh, the other story that that um, Angus mentioned. So he uh, issues this command to the robot and the robot sort of pauses and like has to work a little harder because now it's trying to make the best story ever. And it starts telling the story and it's amazing and everybody's like enthralled and it gets to the part that sort of seems like it's going to be the climax. And then the robot says, I'm sorry, your majesty. There are two equally likely like endings to this story, and I cannot determine <clears throat> which is more marvelous, um, <laughs> or something like that. And yeah, and the king um, says the king demands that the robot just like pick one. Like he gets tired of waiting. The robot kind of is like calculating and sort of sort of sitting there calculating silently, trying to figure out which is the more marvelous ending. And the king just gets tired of this and sort of demands that he just tell him any any which one of them. And the robot says, well, but majesty, your, your, your previous command was that I must give you the most marvelous story. And this new command is like contradictory. And so the robot kind of shuts down. <laughs> yeah. It like has been issued two contradictory commands and like, and, and can't keep operating. And so it, it sort of die. It doesn't die, but it shuts down and uh, it crashes. And uh, hmm. and then the, the scientists have to like sort of fix it, and they they the king's like what 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 happened? And the scientists explain, <laughs> it. you know, it's the you you gave it two contradictory commands. You can't do that, your majesty. Like if we were to uh, unspool what had happened and like you know revert back to a previous state of the robot, then we would also lose the the story that um, that was so marvelous that it was telling. It would we'd have to delete that in order to unspool it back to a previous state. And so, you know, what, the only thing we can do, Your Majesty, is we can just sort of caution you not to, like, ask it about this again, but we can turn it back on and it'll just tell you other stories and we'll go back to that. And that was pretty satisfying, right? That'll be okay, right? And yep. the king's like, er, I guess. <laughs> and That's so, what he says. <laughs> direct quote. And, uh, yeah, so it goes back to that and, and they, they, the king, you know, 
is grudgingly accepts that and, and sort of the robot begins telling stories again and and years pass in this way and the king grows old and eventually the king falls ill and uh he or but right before he falls ill actually the, the king is, is an old man and he asks the robot at one point he sort of softens in his old age and he asks the robot at one point did you ever fi figure out which was the better ending of that story and the robot says i still didn't your majesty um and uh and the king says ah it's too bad well that's all right. And then that very night, the king falls falls ill in bed and sort of never is able, never recovers and, and dies. And um, the robot says, um, as the king is ill, the robot says, I actually think there might be a third ending to the story. Uh, <laughs> and um, and the king says, no, no, that's all right. You know, and he, and he sort of passes away. And in the king's will, he accounts for everything, you know, in his life very carefully, except the, the robot isn't really carefully accounted. For. Like the robot is not it's not specified exactly what to do with the storytelling robot in the king's will mm. so the king's heir decides that to, you know the king's heir doesn't really care for stories he's more of a sports guy yeah <laughs> or something he's an action character he like likes going outside and doing things and so he, he decides to honor the old king's memory the storytelling robot will be um put in the museum and no one will be allowed to use it anymore forever and no one will ever know the ending <laughs> that the storytelling robot uh had decided or or the third ending or which of the first two was better or any of those mm. and then of course, I guess maybe I, I've told you every everything else about this story, so I, I could tell you the, the very ending, perhaps. What do you think? Yeah, where the, that train has left the station, you may as well. Yeah, I may as well. Um, the very ending of the story is is uh, is a the story ends with a, with the line, um, and that is all your majesty. Or, or forget what the line is exactly, but there's this line that the robot always uses to end its stories to the king. Yeah. And that's how this story ends with mm -hmm. that line. Yeah, it just occurred to me that the bit at the end where the robots put in the box was reminding me. It was giving me some half-remembered image, and I remembered what it is. Do you know the philosopher uh, Jeremy Bentham? Yes. And you know where his his body is now? No, where is oh, it? Oh, this is such a good story. I'm so glad you don't know. Um, at his own request, he had his body um preserved. I, f I forgot what the word is. What they do to taxidermied the thing they do to animals. Yeah, that is taxidermy. Yeah, that, that is taxidermy, yeah. Yep, wow. he had his body taxidermied and put on display in a cabinet in the University College of London, which I think is where he taught. Unreal. And it's still there. I visited it just earlier this year. Paid a wee That's pilgrimage. wild. What uh -huh. was it like to see it? Uh, well, I'd seen it in pictures before. Um, it, it was believable. <laughs> I'd been making a point to see lots of weird things in London, so it felt like par for the course that by that point. But wow. it's pretty cool. I, it didn't freak me out. It was I the day I showed up seemed to be an open day for overseas students. So quite a lot of um what looked like young Chinese students uh, were walking around and just kind of passing by this this dead philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers, just dead and in a cabinet in one of the halls. That is absolutely wild. <laughs> <laughs> yep so that's what the wow. story the end of the storytelling robot reminded me of wow. but um i didn't really get an awful lot of deep thoughts uh, about the story but apart from the really obvious one that it's meta it's a story about stories and it's got a bit of a fable set fable-esque setting and tone and i felt like if it's about anything it's maybe about what stories are what they do so to say that in a more pretentious way the nature and function of stories uh more about that what stories do for us than it is about what science or robots do for us. Did, did you get a similar feeling or do you have a different take on it? 
Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. I think it's it's a it's very much about what stories are like and what stories do for us and and what the point of telling stories is. Mm. Um, but I think maybe it's just because I love stories like this, you know, these sort of science fables, I guess. And mm. I also I also love like sort of actual fables and 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 weird stories and and uh, and uh, fantasy stories. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a weird way that um by by combining uh these sort of like i don't know like words by combining words that are usually taken to refer to scientific things and and super realistic and and precisely specified things and mm -hmm. combining those words with um fantasy tropes and a fantasy plot and and a, a, the form of a fantasy story it kind of almost gets you to think about the scientific ideas in a new way like mm. the robot that's described here is a is a robot that learns and it, it sort of in that sense kind of makes one think about a lot of the actually existing um machine learning technology in the world and and yeah. yet because it's the form of a of a fantasy story and because you know it can it it just kind of i don't know i found myself provoked to think about science in a different way exactly because it was this weird juxtaposition juxtaposition between scientific ideas and like completely what are typically thought of as totally unscientific ideas mm -hmm. which is i don't know i mean Maybe I'm just like in my head way too much, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, <laughs> I think that's where Fadal wants you to be too much, <laughs> you know. But yeah, it's very possible. And I'm just thinking sort of too much about this and putting stuff into it that comes from, you know, me. It doesn't come from the story, but um, well, again, if a story makes you do that, it's a sign of a good story. I hope so. Mm. Yeah. But I thought, you know, in particular with the learning, the way the robot learns and the way that the robot. So one, there's one moment that I really like, which is the scientists um, are talking, the, the robot kind of accepts these contradictory commands and then shuts down. And the scientists are trying to explain this to the king. And they, mm. they tell the king that, the, look, the robot is like, has learned so much that it's actually too complicated for us to understand how it works anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a, that's a real phenomenon in, in the creation of machine learning algorithms like it really right. is true that it really is true that um that uh you know when you when you simulate a function uh when you learn a function uh you can learn a function like okay when when you try to um uh, train a, a neural network to uh to um can you tell you know, us really quickly what's a neural network yeah, so a neural network is a, there are lots of different kinds of neural network, but like at a high level, a neural network is a type of algorithm that's designed to um, learn a mathematical function, which is a fancy way of saying it's designed to figure out, it's designed to like um, approximate something. Um, right. And, you know, an example of this would be a computer program that can tell the difference between two images that can say this image is an image of a cat this image is an image of a, of a dog something like that you know the there are lots of different algorithms that you know can can do similar things but a neural network is one type of algorithm that tries to like approximate um a function which might be able to determine you know whether something is one thing or another mm -hmm. thing or it and might they tend to, to use fuzzy logic like we use rather than strict logic to, to put it in a very like baby language kind of way right uh yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure exactly what fuzzy logic is, to be honest. But um, well, they they, yeah, they, they work that more like a, like a human brain. They don't need to follow really strict rules like a traditional that is very program. True. Exactly. Yeah, because what they do is they um, they uh, make them. They sort of um, they uh, they progressively improve themselves 
they mm. they they start out perhaps as a weak approximation and by comparing examples of correct answers to the thing that they're trying to approximate they progressively become a better approximation over time and the only thing that the human sort of specifies the human programmer is sort of how the uh improvement of the approximation is going to work the human programmer doesn't specify mm -hmm. um what the eventual approximation is going to be and so what you end up with is you know in a lot of cases the eventual approximation becomes incredibly complicated and there is no human being that wrote it and there is mm -hmm. no human being that might be able to even say what it like means like how it works because all that humans done is sort of told it how to improve itself you know yeah. it's almost like you have a, a a pet or something and you want to train your pet to be better and so you sort of give it a treat whenever it does the thing you don't know you don't know how how spot knows how to shake right you don't know how your your pet dog knows how to like shake you don't know like what's going on in its head but you're the one who's kind of trained it to do that you know what i mean so the the scientists are in the position of the of the trainer where they they don't know how it is the robot is able to be so good at telling stories they don't know like if they, even if they look at its its code they don't know what it means so mm. i don't know i i I mean, it's a, it's a true thing, basically. That even though it's a fable, even though the story has um, has like <laughs> the story is sort of like maybe wasn't even intending to be true. It's it's not clear that like that Fadal was like trying to write this like make that line, you know, a, a true comment on the nature of like machine learning or something like that. Mm. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Well, but he it seem, was... he seems to like robots, at least for whatever yeah. purpose. So he might know a bit about this stuff. Yeah, it's possible. But uh, mm. I, I just found that it was, it, you know, by by making that point, I mean, it's it's just like a, I don't know, it's sort of, it's like how when you when you read a, a fairy tale and like the evil king, you know, sends his soldiers to every home in the land to check if they, uh, you know, check if there's like a, the prophesied hero has been born yet or something like that you know when when something like that happens in a story you know on the one hand it's like okay that could be a good story on the other hand maybe it reminds you of the census and it's mm. like this real thing that that maybe we we should think about in a certain way because the story reveals something in our minds about how how it actually affects us mm -hmm. i don't know i'm being very long-winded and no i get it <laughs> I think the listeners will get it too i hope so um, yeah um and if they didn't they learned something about neural networks which is also a plus um my my take on the the I guess about the the robot and how it changes it, it makes me think of two things. One is first of all the robot in this story and the other uh, Fadal robot story. It's a robot that does what they are supposed to do. It, they serve humans and they're very helpful. He's not writing a robots gone bad kind of end of the world story. I think that that's doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think it's a thing that doesn't shove itself in your face whilst you're reading the story. But I think it's a it, it gives the kind of more calm relaxing feel to the story that it's not about evil robots it's more maybe more optimistic about what robots could do for us in that sense but also um to what you you said about the the robots program or neural network evolving um it made me think about the meta aspect that um it's the stories that give the robot kind of a capacity to be more human or be be more like a human because we're told its brain evolves in complexity and we're told that it's able to feel pain i can't remember what sort of pain and i don't have the story in front of me but it also is able to respond correctly to the king's moods and establish i guess what you call it on, on like a normal positive human relationship with him 
after the king stops asking about the perfect ending to the story. And like if, if we're really doing, if I'm doing a little bit more of a reach, um, the king gets a bit more human too, or he at least calms down and stops being so binary. Like you either, you need to tell me one story or the other. And we're also told the robot is the king's only friend. So I don't know if there's anything deep there, but I think that's the other side to the, the robot becoming more complicated. It mirrors neural networks and their approximation of, I don't know, either being more effective or emulating the way we think. But on an, like an emotional or psychological level, the robot also gets more human. I think that's an interesting thing. I think that's a great point. I love that. I wasn't thinking about that, but I think you're, you're onto something there. And I think your point and mine, they're two sides of... They're intertwined or two sides of the same coin or, or whatever. Another thing that I think is fairly obvious about the story is that it's got, like you said, the science fiction elements, but it's also got fantasy elements. But if you're looking at it from a how Chinese is how Chinese slash how international angle is the story, which is that's kind of my little obsession. I love looking at what domestic things are in the, the stories I do on the podcast, but also what kind of globalized or borrowed things are there too. So in this story, at least in the English version, it felt like there was elements from medieval Europe, at least to me, and maybe some things from imperial China too. So there's the there's the king, uh, there's the court. Um, I, I can't think of more specific examples, uh, but do you think that's a good description of the story, that it's got medieval European stuff and imperial historical Chinese stuff? Yeah, I do. Um... I, I really do. I, I you know, my, I, um, I, I think one of my, um, one of the ways that I think about this, I, my, if you, if anyone's ever listened to Spectology, they know that I, I like, you know, bring up annoyingly often the like, sort of, uh, lineages of, of stories, like the, the sort of things that they draw upon from the past. So mm -hmm. you know, um, in, in science fiction, obviously, you know, stories like Frankenstein are or um, A Journey to the Center of the Earth, sort of older science fiction, or even older science fiction than that, um, casts a long shadow and a lot of things draw on it. And so I love the sort of histories of these sorts of things. And I think like, you know, definitely there's stuff like uh, whatever the foreign story that inspired Fei Dao was, um, there certainly was such a story, according to him. And so there's definitely this like, I think, uh, you know, Western uh, idea or set of ideas that's coming into it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, Fade has also said that he's he's certainly a fan of of other kinds of of European science fiction or or, or Western science fiction or things like that, and uh, and he studies science fiction. Um, yes. So I think there's definitely going to be some some sort of foreign influences, even if you kind of can't see them directly. I think you can see them directly, but there's oh, yeah. certainly also there. And then as far as the Chinese stuff, I think um, you know China has a really long tradition of strange stories or. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of ways you could translate. There's different names for them in Chinese, and there's different ways of translating the names into English. But there's sort of fables or weird stories or philosophical fables or, um, you know, things like that go back all the way in Chinese literature. Um, yeah. And everybody is aware of them. I mean, any 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 sort of student of any sort of Chinese student in in in, in China will have will have read some of these. What you you know. Everything from Zhuangzi, you know, and and old um, Taoist and philo philosophical stories mm -hmm. about you know people may have heard of the one where you know um, 
the butterfly the yeah right you know he was wondering what uh, master Hui was wondering if he dreamed himself, master Hui was wondering if he dreamed himself a butterfly or if he was a butterfly dreaming himself a person you know that the stories like that um there's a lot of other stories from Zhuangzi that are sort of these like philosophical fables that are short and yet they kind of have this core of trying to like touch on deep and important themes in human life without having like one moral or one point so they're yeah. they're very like open to interpretation kind of like this story is mm, um yeah and then there's like much more recent things but like still hundreds of years old like um uh pu songling's uh tales from the strange strange tales from the studio i don't remember how it's translated in chinese uh, it's called strange tales from a chinese studio yeah there's a great penguin edition of it in english and uh yeah you know stories like that are very well known uh in china and they're you know there's a lot of some of them are ghost stories some of them are sort of horror horror ish and others of them are just kind of like very strange things happen in in different settings and i think there's an element there's a subtle element of that. I mean, in some ways, this is almost feels more European-y, this story, but there's yes. still a subtle element of that in there, too. Yeah. Um, what you were saying about the Zhuangzi and stuff. So the other robot story, uh, the robot who liked a tall tale, who liked to tell tall tales, um, that, so I've read uh, years and years ago, it was before I went to live in China and before I was a China obsessive, but I had, I'd read him. Oh, what was it? Uh, the the Tao the Tao of Pooh, the Tao of Pooh, and the. the <laughs> I books. know that book. I've read that uh, book. <laughs> and the sequel, the the Tay of Piglet. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't necessarily interested in Chinese stuff. Uh, it was just, what on earth is this black and white symbol? How's that a religion? And uh, obviously, I know now that that I think the book emphasizes as well that Taoism and Chinese folk traditions are inextricable but anyway it ended up with me downloading a pdf of the Tao Te Ching and my experience reading the robot who liked to tell tall tales did cast my mind back with like the kind of how it's like some very short nuggets of fables how kind of strange quirky traveling characters bump into each other in different scenarios I think there's two bits in that story where someone's sitting by a river or a lake fishing just stuff like that so I feel like the elements you described are maybe more in that story than in storytelling robot. But yeah, I think you're on something there for sure. Yeah, there's one. Um, I think you're right about that for sure. Um, uh, there's one other. Um, there, there's so many different. Uh, I think people people often bring up t- uh, strange tales um, from Chinese studio and other stuff like that. But there's also um, there's so many other sorts of stories that uh, that exist in like. The history of Chinese literature that kind of are brought up a little bit less often, and one of my favorite kinds of those is um, they're called chuanxi, tang chuanxi, and they're this. It's a genre of sort of short story that involves strange or miraculous things happening. Okay. Um, and it's from you know, really associated with the Tang Dynasty, but people wrote them after that too. And and the Strange Tales collection includes uh, some things that are called chuanxi, but it's now. Yeah. yeah sorry. Go on keep going i'm search i'm searching for something online <laughs> oh yeah um so uh those stories are um they 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 come they have different sort of genre implications like some of them are like you know more realistic than others some of them have like a ghost some of them only have sort of a miraculous seeming event some of them have references to like exotic foreign things that have that seem to have magical powers of some kind or another yeah and I was thinking, actually, for some, uh, I was thinking there's this one chuanxi called Kunlunu, which is about a foreign, it's, so 
the the title character is a slave that is kept by a, like a Chinese person, and the slave ends okay. up saving saving him. And the slave reminded me a little of a robot. I mean, and it's it's there's mm. so many things to talk about with that because it's very complicated for racial reasons and and uh, because the slave is not Chinese, the slave is foreign. Um, Would that and, be like a a northern barbarian or a western barbarian? Or the something? slave is actually described as having dark skin, and uh, ah, probably yeah. And so it's complicated. Some people have said that they think it's from Southeast Asia or even South Asia um, or somewhere else, perhaps. Uh, sounds like a can of worms it is but in any case that story it reminded me a little bit of it because the way the story works is the 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 slave um almost like functions like a robot in the story like the slave is the sort of only friend of this of this uh chinese person and, and ends up saving him from certain death and um i don't know it's it's it's, it's maybe a bit of a stretch but i guess the point is that I, I think you can make these connections to like strange pieces of, of Chinese lore. And there's all this sort of soup of like interesting older uh, Chinese literature out there that, that people in the West may have not heard as much about that mm-hmm. kind of is like the submerged part of the iceberg of Chinese literature. And yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, there is a podcast out there which is about all of this stuff. Have you heard of the Chinese mythology podcast? No, I haven't. You should subscribe to this. So it's. <laughs> It's uh, hosted by Yang Li and Eric Parfit. So I think they're they're a married couple. Obviously, Yang is, um, she's the wife. She's Chinese, I guess. Eric, I think he's an American. And she basically, t- in like average kind of five minute length, sometimes slightly longer episodes, she just tells him one of these strange stories. And they usually remark on how strange it is. And a lot of them have like a magic or a horror thing. I- I've not listened. There's, what are they on now? Because it's so short. They're now on episode 204 it looks like they do roughly two a week so if anyone is intrigued by these strange stories that um, matt was describing and either doesn't know where to find them or like me would need them in english this podcast has summaries and descriptions of the stories Uh, not readings but it's quite funny as well sometimes eric gets totally bemused and confused and befuddled and <laughs> sometimes young has an explanation other times she just laughs along with him so it's quite an amusing show sounds great especially if you like little short nugget episodes i prefer long ones so waffling uh keeping waffling to a minimum um here's a here's a quote something the translator alec ash wrote about Fedao. uh this is in the introduction to Fedao's uh an end of day story it's on i think it's on china channel um but if you want some accompanying art it's on paperrepublic.org a really good uh, really really good website we've mentioned on a previous episode of the show so this is going to be me reading a big block of text i apologize if anyone gets bored but i think it paints a, an interesting picture of Dao. so uh, here we go this is alec ash's writing i first met Dao at paper republic's christmas party in 2012. he was a scrawny male geek Tsinghua student in specs who wrote science fiction, a recognizable type. I'm a closet sci-fi fan myself, and we became friends. When he sent me a couple of his stories, I was immediately taken by his style, more fairy tale than techno nerd. I could picture his childhood in a coal town in Inner Mongolia, nose buried in a copy of Science Fiction World magazine, while everyone else played basketball. Now he's got four. Bo- now he has four books of collected stories and is writing in a golden age of Chinese sci-fi. This fable was a delightful challenge to translate, infused with both quiet humor and a deep melancholia. The vanishing population reminded me of political disappearances in China, but Fei Dao insists 
It's a story about death. Trust the tale, not the teller, open brackets, or translator, close brackets. So that's the end of the quote. Um, I kind of got the feeling from this description from Alec Ash that Fedal might be a little bit of a kindred spirit, maybe for himself and maybe for me when I'm feeling particularly gloomy. Uh, storytelling robot is a bit, a little bit melancholy and death is in there. Uh, the other robot story, Robot Who Tells Tall Tales, is really kind of existential, asking existential questions. There's a lot of hope versus despair. Death is a character as well as a key theme. And he's not a friendly version of death like um, uh, Discworld. He is a bit of a grim version. And there's kind of sadness infused with a bit of a smile. It reminded me, out of the other Chinese sci-fi I've read, it reminded me a little bit of Sha Jia's stories, A Thousand Ghosts. Totally. Um, yep, Thousand Ghosts Parade Tonight, Tong Tong Summer, Good Night Melancholy. So my question for you is, is an emotional question, Matt. Do you feel Fei Dao's sadness or his loneliness or even his optimism? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i think i do i mean i as i said i love stories like this and they oh, i was also reminded of the Xiaoja stories you mentioned because her writing also has this kind of melancholy um we, uh, especially the the one like a thousand ghosts where it's this sort of like the ghost street is like uh dilapidated ruin <laughs> and mm. uh and her other one with the with the horse dragon, the dragon horse. Uh, what's which one? Oh is that? yeah, uh, I think it's called horse dragon or dragon horse. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you've I'd, I'd forgotten, but yeah, that is melancholy too. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I do feel it. I think um, my partner makes this point sometimes um, that um, and I say I say this too much on air because people are probably tired of hearing it if they've ever heard me talk before. But the it's important to um kind of feel the full spectrum of emotions in life and 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 when you read um she likes to say mix uh happy and sad in the right ratio um mm. don't don't only read happy things don't only read sad things either mm. of those will be bad um mix it in the right ratio and then you'll you'll be all right so mm. Yeah, um, I think I said when Shaja was at the uh, the Leeds genre thing. Uh, so when I went up to Chanjo Fan, I told him, "Hi, my favorite thing I've read by you is um uh, was uh, Year of the Rat. That was one of my favorite stories mm. in um in Invisible Planets." And I kind of I spilled my guts a bit more to Shaja. I said, "Hi, Shaja. Um, just want to say only two things of Chinese sci-fi ever made me cry, or any two things of sci-fi full stop ever made me cry. One was." the bit at the end of Death's End with the names of certain things on a screen. I won't spoil that for anyone. And um, your story, uh, Tong Tong Summer. And if I was to meet her again, or if I was to speak to her again, which is podcast subscribers take note, if I do speak to her again, I'll need to tell her Goodnight Melancholy got the waterworks going. And the reason I mention this is, I think it's just, it's harder for, uh, at least for me, films make me cry quite a lot. Uh, not they didn't not as a kid but as an adult stuff in film i suppose because as an adult real life you're stuck you're dealing with real life and difficult things and when they're in films they get me quite easily get the waterworks going stories usually don't uh so in this case fade out did not get me but um i think your partner's got a good point you can you can get both from uh from 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 life and from stories and a little bit of sadness doesn't hurt yeah, definitely. And I think uh, if if anyone checks out this this very short story, I, I like I said before, I really do encourage you to check out the other one um, that Angus mentioned, uh, mm. the uh, robot who tells tall tales, because it's almost like a 
a longer and more in-depth and more emotionally intense kind of exploration of very similar stuff. Um, yes. Yeah. Very good. And yeah. I, I can't say enough how Xiaja, how great I think Xiaja's stories are. If, uh, yeah, <laughs> folks haven't read her, they should. Yep. And she's in her story. You can find a lot of her stories online in different places in English. And she's in both of the Ken Leo uh, anthologies, Invisible Planets and Broken Stars. So, yes, heartily recommended, along with all the other stories in those books. Uh, I'm going to mention the website a little later, but um, what you said about uh, a robot who tells tall tales having similar ideas about stories. Um, so the robot who liked to tell tall tales, such a hard one to say aloud. Um, <laughs> the translation by Ken Leo originally appeared on the Clark's World website as just a, a web page. Um, and you can see what people commented below. If you click reveal comments, you can see the AV commenters. And one of them said something like, it was one of these things where it's a big long criticism and then at the end by the way i really like the story and the criticism <laughs> was obviously someone who is lives a life of the mind they're like i can't really like this i can't agree with this story because of its view of storytelling <laughs> that uh, stories are just uh, are just a distraction and it's nihilistic and i don't agree with nihilism and on one hand i was like okay person you, you you're a bit too in love with yourself <laughs> but um on the other hand maybe they're onto something maybe Fedao is a bit of a, a nihilist Although if he is a nihilist, he seems to be someone who is prepared to argue against. Uh, this isn't really stuff that's in Storytelling Robot. This is more in Robot Who Tells Tall Tales. But if you like stories that... Uh, nihilist is a strong word, but if they deal with optimism, pessimism, existential questions, that seems to be one of Fedao's themes, at least in these two things I've read. And no, that's not true. I've read end of, an end of day story as well. And it's also death, death, death. What's it all for? So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note yeah. this is more of a comment than a question but oh, go on. <laughs> no i'm just imitating imitating uh people who ask questions at uh, events who are yeah. long-winded and have nothing to say <laughs> well, I, I do that on the podcast i yak and yak and the guest is like what's he gonna say and at the end yeah. i go well that wasn't really a question i do that too i don't know how you avoid doing that in yeah. life yeah. But... it's okay <laughs> sorry what's so what is your non-question no, that was honestly just a joke. Uh, but it did. I was reminded when you were talking of uh, another bit from the interview with Fei Dao that I read, uh, where he talks about the purpose of storytelling. Um, and he does seem to feel very ambivalent about it. You know, mm -hmm. he, he kind of, on the one hand, struggles with whether it's worth, whether his stories in particular are sort of worth anything, because he the way he thinks of them is that they're not, like, they don't come to him with this, like, moral purpose in mind. They just sort of mm -hmm. come to him. Or he likes thinking about them or something like that. Um, but then, you know, I think he, he kind of, although he struggles with the ambivalence, he seems to, I mean, you know, please, someone who either is Fei Dao or knows Fei Dao better than me, correct me if this is an, a poor interpretation of his words. But my impression was that he kind of uh, feels at the end like there's he has no choice. Like he just, that the stories are, 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 are there one way or, or another. And it's kind of like in this story, you know, at the end of the story, you know, the robot never does tell you what happened at the end. But mm -hmm. it's also, and so like on some on some level, this the, it didn't matter. Like that story, that most marvelous story in the world was like irrelevant because it never ended. But on another level, it was the main, it was like, it was, it was sort of central to the 
character evolution of of the king and of the robot itself and and it was kind of a, a big part of their relationship which was worth something and i think if you think about it you know in terms of your own life as a reader i mean you know maybe a story can't bring someone back from the dead or cure an illness or bring peace to, yeah. to a conflict but nonetheless i mean we need them and we kind of wouldn't know what to do without them and even if we and as as one of the things i thought from the other story the t t robot who loves to tell, tell tall tales it's almost like whether you think you're telling a story or not you are so there's really no mm -hmm. other alternative yeah i think the power of stories comes in either them being used as a reference for something in reality or just what having a conversation about it with someone else or a film adaptation being made of the story that helps too but um last thing i'm going to say before we go into technical questions um i i meant to say this earlier about the, the a point about the uh two possible endings and both of them being equally good and the fact that it being equally good makes them equally true in the sense that they're both the best that seems like a bit of a very obvious sci-fi pointer to quantum states schrodinger's cat but again maybe there's nothing deeper than that I don't know. Do you have any? Did, did did that thought present itself to you as you were reading? I thought about. I I mean, in a way, yes, because I, I I thought about how the robot isn't like that isn't the end. Like the robot then later is sort of like I actually thought of a third one, which uh, I love. I love that. I love the like. Oh, I think there's this. I think there's an unstoppable force about to meet an immobile object, and yeah, it's impossible to say which will win. I think there's a paradox, but actually there's a third thing. Yep. The only way to avoid that is to kill Heath Ledger. <laughs> Dark jokes. Um, on oh, that man. note, technical questions. Um, it's simple. We kill Heath Ledger. Um, <laughs> technical questions. Um, so unlike me, you're fluent in Mandarin. And since you're not a Chinese author, uh, I feel I'm, I don't have to feel guilty about pestering you with kind of language related questions. Um, so I, f I forget, you said you'd read this story in Chinese, right? Because it's, it's nice yeah. and short. Okay, so I have four translation related or language difference related questions. Um, what's this story's Chinese name? And is it is it identical to the English or is there any subtle differences? Uh, that's a good question. It is identical. It's Jianggushi de okay. Ren. So it's the same. Yeah. Okay, storytelling robot. And there's there's King. So I know you, you can say King kind of more than one way in, in Chinese because the character I know is Wang, which means emperor. And then there's Guo Wang, which I guess you might use as king instead of emperor, perhaps. Um, how's, how's he named in the Chinese uh, version? Yeah, he's called Guo Wang. And uh, okay. yeah, and I think, you know, there's uh, in general, the way that the, the, these are really good questions because it's sort of like you could imagine the Chinese working in a lot of different ways. But the way that the story was written in Chinese, it's it's very much like in in some ways it's sort of a lot like a translation of a European story into Chinese, although interesting, because right. a lot of the terminology is kind of it avoids using a lot of specific medieval Chinese terminology for things like this. Like it does not use the, the you know it could have used like a term for emperor. And it could have used various terms for courtiers and, and like mm. court officials and storytellers that are that are um, associated with like Chinese history or specific historical eras. But instead, it uses this sort of like 
modern standard Mandarin terminology for things. And a lot of modern standard Mandarin actually comes from European languages. A lot of the like right. standard Mandarin words for things like like king, for instance, um, guowang is a word that existed before the 19th century in Chinese, but it wasn't used in quite the way that it's used now. And the way that it's used now is basically used the way the European word king is used. Mm. Interesting. So do you think that's been, this is probably an answer, a question where both answers are yes, but do you think it's to give it a Western flavor or to give it a, it could be anywhere flavor? I think it's like a could be anywhere. I mean, I don't know, right? I, I have no yeah. clue. I, I feel like, you know, in some sense I need to give some caveats because, you know, I feel like I know something about this stuff, but I, like I said before, yeah. I'm, somebody please tell me if you think that I've made yeah. a mistake here. But my impression is at least, you know, is that it's... um. It sort of gives it this anywhere feel. It gives this. It gives it this sense that yeah, it could be China, or it could be somewhere else. And it sort of reads like it reads like a modern fable, not mm -hmm. like an old fable. If that I makes any sense. I suppose that's a strength of the term Guowang. Uh, that could be emperor, could be king. But in English, well, I just said it. If you say emperor, unless it's Rome, you probably mean Japan or China or maybe somewhere else in Asia. If you say king, it's probably going to mean um, somewhere in Europe. So I, I guess that doesn't say anything particular about Chinese, but just quirks between languages. It's an interesting thing. Uh, another question related to that, you've already, you've already mentioned like the vocabulary being used. Is there any particular historical feel to the vocabulary? Like, is it being archaic at all or is it very standard and neutral? No, it's very neutral. And in fact, the only really specific in time sort of words that are used are science words. Um, Aha. So there are some moments where a sort of science word comes up and, and, and it's, and the, you know, it, it sounds very modern the way the science words are used, but then it sort of mixes in with the like kind of more neutrally sort of other, the neutral feel of some of the other stuff. Mm, interesting. And uh, last thing. So I've tried to make this a feature on a show, but I keep forgetting uh, it's word of the day. Now, uh, I, I was going to ask you to teach uh, listeners who don't know the word for robot. I would have done this myself. I used to know this word. And I have like a, a few half-remembered memories, but um, they're gone now. So um, what's what's Mandarin for robot? Jiqiren. Jiqiren. Three yeah. characters. So Ren, that would be person. Ji mm -hmm. is that machine? Jiqi is machine, yeah. Jiqi is machine. Okay. Jiqiren. Thank you. Uh, another translation kind of question. So this is another one that is related to storytelling robot versus the robot who like to tell tall tales. Uh, about the English versions, one, so the storytelling robot, that's translated by Alec Ash, and he's up against strong competition because the robot who likes to tell tall tales, that's translated by Ken Leo, who is effectively kind of your, um, luxury is not the word. What is the word? <laughs> Prime foremost? Most he's, famous. Yeah, there you go. That would do it. Um, he, he's the guy for translating Chinese sci-fi. Um, so my kind of impression was both the translations are good. They both read well uh, for me as an English reader. But glancing over, it seems like Ken Leo's prose has a bit more flourish, uh, maybe in the sentence syntax, and he seems to be using wider voc a wider vocab range. Do you, but I didn't really actually feel a difference as a reader. They're both pretty immersive. Uh, did you feel any difference or have any comment on that? I think it's an interesting observation. I, I think they're both very skilled. I, I think in a way I almost feel like the... Um, the storytelling robot the original is simpler and so yeah there's this like it, it almost is just 
the fact that the original is it's almost a, more of a difference in the original rather than a difference of translating style that makes I, sense. I haven't read very many of Alec Ash's translations, so I don't really know if I have a sense of what his sort of style is or mm. or anything like that. But I I um, I did think about sort of whether I thought he did a good job or not, and I, I think he did. I think he, he did a great job. I mean, I think it really captures the kind of like simplicity of the original because um, mm. it's sort of – and it, it's simple, but it's also – it also has a flow. It also has a good rhythm that I think he, he gets. And Ken Liu is, is really, really great. I um, mm. have a lot of – compliments to pay to him <laughs> yeah I've, I've read one other story translated by alec ash by by fadal well the only other alec ash translation i've read is another fadal story it's that one i mentioned before an end of day story uh the one that's available on uh, china channel and paper republic and i just remembered i read another one yesterday uh it's it is in the uh reincarnated giant anthology which is a really good one but is a bit pricey so it's probably less less probably not as well as distributed as the two ken leo anthologies um but there is also a pdf of this story online somewhere it's the demon's head which is by a completely different translator also by fadao um i won't go into that suffice to say that's a good story too uh, also well translated and completely not segueing at all um <laughs> jumping back to um the clark's world comments about the tall tale story again uh, one user felt that there was a lot of illusions at play in the robot who liked to tell tall tales and he listed a few of them and it was it was very diverse some were western i think most were western some were chinese um so in the robot the storytelling robot like i said i thought there was maybe a reference to schrodinger's cat but that was the only direct possible reference to anything i picked up uh, do you feel there's any direct references to anything like if you were writing the if you were editing or publishing this, would you add any footnotes or do you think it's kind of not pinpointing anything directly? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good question. My, my thought is that the, um, is that, you know, if we could pin down what his, what Feidau's sort of inspiration was, that would be, that would be pretty cool. But even if mm. you can't, I think there's a lot of similarity. There's just enormous similarity with, with some of the stuff that we've mentioned, but in particular, uh, Stanis Lolim's stories about robots. There's a, a, like a really interesting thing that, that happens here too, where, you know, robot, the, the word robot in English uh, comes from another Polish writer. And oh. for whatever reason, yeah, um, I really am going to butcher his name if I, if I try to say it, but. It's okay. It's it, not a Polish podcast. Kat, 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 Kat or something like that. Okay. Um, but in any case, um, the uh, there's a strange association between sort of Polish science fiction and robots. I, it's not like an it's just like a coincidence because of course the idea the idea of a mechanical person or a kind of artificial person is older than the word robot. But hmm. I, I I don't know. I think this is an interesting thing there where you know foot I guess footnotes I might add it would have to do with robots and and like other sort of robot stories and it would also right. have to do with other sorts of Chinese stories like we've mentioned. Um, sure. Yeah, and I think the the robot who tells tall tales probably could get a lot of footnotes because there's oh, yeah. lines in that that are that make me think of like Zhuangzi or uh, or uh, or even kung fu stories um, mm. because of the way that the robot is like this sort of adventurer who like goes off into the world to like try to seek to to, to sort of fulfill a quest, you know? Yes. There's something I must ask. So there's a bit in the robot who liked to tell tall tales where 
the robot meets Mr. Cat, a cat fishing down ah. the river. Do you remember that? Yes. Is that in the Chinese? Is that just... Have you read the Chinese version? Of I that? haven't read the Chinese of oh, that one. I'm sorry. So I, I, I think I know how to say that in Mandarin. Mao Xianzhong, Cat Mister, Mister Cat. Do you think there's a ref? That's a reference, or it's just supposed to be crazy? Uh, well, there's a couple things that come to mind really right away. One, of course, is um, Lewis Carroll, and I think like yes, it's all. It's certainly possible that Lewis Carroll, I mean, people like Lewis Carroll and Borges are, are certainly known in China and like stories of those sort of strange, modern, um, fantastical, philosophical stories are, are certainly known in China. Mm. So, you know, that comes to mind, especially Lewis Carroll. And then like the other thing is um, Mao Changji, which is a Lao Shua novel called ah. called Cat Country or Cat, uh, Cat Country. Yes. Something like that in, in English. And it's uh, Cat Country. Yeah. And it's... Um, it's a so Lao, Lao Shu is a very one of the most famous 20th century Chinese authors of fiction and uh, literary figures, and uh, he's like a, a really a giant in the in the literary history of the 20th century in China. And and Mao Chengzi is a science fiction story that he wrote about this sort of city of cats on Mars that that is a, a very thinly veiled allegory for China itself mm. and the way that China is sort of um, humiliated by the West. Uh, the city of cats is like humiliated by its enemies and and the cats are all addicted to this thing that's definitely not opium and cat <laughs> yeah and um so i don't know i mean the cats is are sort of connected to to science fiction it's also weirdly connected to modernity because i also thought of there's a famous japanese story um called um i am a cat by um natsume soseki and okay. uh that was published in the 1890s it's one of the more famous Japanese modern Japanese short stories is very associated with like the coming of modernity to Japan and the coming of modernity to Asia. So I, I don't know. I mean, I have all these associations with things. I don't know how if any of them are things that Fei Dao would have thought of. Certainly, mm. he's like a, a smart, well-read guy. Who knows? Like probably something totally other thing that I haven't thought of. <laughs> what a what a good answer to a frivolous question. <laughs> um, a thing I stumbled well, I stumbled across a finding, I suppose, of of my dissertation for my master's, which was I did recently and was on Chinese sci-fi from a publishing angle. Was so there's I learned about all the range of Chinese sci-fi out there. So there's your early Qing stuff. There's the kind of stuff written under Mao the communist stuff just pro-government communist stuff soviet influenced and then the new wave of stuff beginning in like the 80s and 90s up to now and the stuff that exists in translation essentially with a few exceptions is it's everything that ken leo has touched and then more and more stuff coming through clark's world but cat country is like the weird odd one out it's a much older book and it exists as a penguin classic of some sort and isn't really marketed as a sci-fi book, I suppose, because it's a Penguin classic. It's just a piece of, it's one of the little lucky pieces of great Chinese literature that West, a big Western publisher has decided to put in one of their lists. It's a great way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. So I think it might be, a, I don't know how much of an oddity it is in Chinese sci-fi or Chinese literature. It's certainly an oddity in C to E, Chinese to English publishing. But yeah, it's good I that you mentioned it. I think it's, you know, in a certain way, it's actually very representative because mm. science fiction in a lot of parts of the world has long been associated with like social commentary and with sort of making points about society as it is around around us. Um, you know, Jules Verne certainly did this and, and Frankenstein certainly does this. And but also like H.G. Wells, like, you know, H.G. Wells has a 
has a book about airship war, you know, that, that kind of, yeah. or even War of the Worlds or... or Which is on newly, a new adaptations on BBC right now. Really? Uh, oh, that's yeah. so cool. Uh, there are no two episodes in now, I think. Oh man, that's awesome. Mm. If you're listening, you know, Netflix or whoever, you should really uh, bring that to uh, the States. I'm willing to bet that's going to reach streaming somewhere. I hope so. That's so cool. Um, what a great idea to adapt that again. But um, but yeah, so 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 science fiction is like very has has often been associated, and also there's there's um sort of less well known science fiction that was famous in its time that has sort of been forgotten, mm. like Edward Bellamy's um, uh, oh, I don't remember what it's called. It's called like Looking Backward. Yeah, that's it. Looking Backward was a story he wrote in the Victorian era about this far future utopia. Um, and it's full of social commentary. And then there's uh, famous, another famous British socialist wrote a, a sort of utopian sci-fi story that was making points about socialism and stuff in the Victorian era. And there's mm. a lot of that sort of thing that predates, that pre that sort of is right around the time that, that China is first starting to trans, that Chinese scholars are first starting to translate a lot of European literature into mm -hmm. Chinese. And I know that, you know, guys like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells were certainly translated and, and people like Lu Xun were reading that and they were, and that was kind of, you know, when you read like uh, Diary of a Madman or something, which I know you've done on your show, like. Episode um, one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that story is not really science fiction at all, but, but it's not that different from a story that's set in like a future place involving, imagine if you had the same yeah. story, but instead of it being this potential bout of madness, it was somehow related to like, you know he was being controlled by some technological like bracelet device or whatever you could yeah. imagine it very small change to that story would make it feel way more science fictional and that's all you would need yeah and on uh, unreal and dystopian yeah yeah and there's there's other that are there's other chinese stories that were written like around the new culture movement and stuff or in the 20s that, that are kind of like that that have the quality of kind of being um being like diary of madman or whatever and they just happen to be slightly more science fictional or they're very explicitly mm. science fictional and then Mao Chengzi, I think, kind of fits into that that sort mm. of era, that kind of tradition. I was watching on on YouTube a documentary about uh, Lovecraft because I just finished reading uh, first time I ever read a collection of his stories, and um, I think I guess I already knew this, but I didn't know to the extent it was true uh, how badly kind of disregarded or maligned science fiction was, or weird fiction or horror at the time he was writing. So obviously some things maybe they survive in publishing or in memory by being categorized as literature and not sci-fi fantasy and so on. I think that that podcast kind of, sorry, that, that YouTube documentary is saying something similar to, to what you're saying there. Oh, that is a, that is a wonderful point. I really mm. like that point and I feel like I could talk about that for ages. But it does remind yes. me there's, there's a modern Chinese author that I'm not sure you've, you've discussed on your show before. His name is Wang Xiaobo. And Wang Xiaobo is, um, is uh, I mean, he he uh, he wrote in like the 80s and 90s and he passed away in the late 90s. So he's very pretty, pretty modern. He's considered like by a lot of people a sort of literary figure, like a, almost like a Wang Shuo type. But mm. he wrote stuff that's like pretty science fictional. And it, it just so happens that people like don't typically think of him as a science fiction author. Mm -hmm. But I think if you kind of if you like read it, it's. I don't know. I mean, it's there's a, there's there's these interesting things that happen where certain authors like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a classic example because that's the kind of thing. Oh, that, yeah. at, least, at least in the states, we read that and people have to read that in high school or middle school or something. It's like assigned a lot, you know. First year of uni is when I read it. Yeah, and and um, 
you know, there's so many movies and whatever adaptations or parodies or, or what have you. But uh, and it sort of has the status of being this like, like just like a, a book that's famous and old. But like, it's totally science fiction. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's mm. about this scientist who creates the thing. And, you know, it's sort of I don't know, it, there's an interesting right. way that things get categorized arbitrarily. Mm. And I think in film, that's a horror. But and it has horror elements in the book. But yeah, there's a, there's science sci-fi stuff there as well. But then, of course, it's also the subtitle is a modern Prometheus. And so it has this mythological mm. connection. Right. Anyway, it's we could go on and on about this. <laughs> we could. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and if, if time was infinite, we should. Um, <laughs> but it's not. So let's go on to our last segment. Um, this is questions about, well, your your own endeavors, let's say, and your, your connection with science fiction. So first question, when did you first really connect with science fiction? Oh yeah, well I'm I'm one of those uh one of those those geeks who uh you know as a kid I mean I was reading this when I was I think my father showed me Star Wars when I was 6 or something like that uh -huh. like the the first one the original that came out you know and uh you know I I've always loved things that are science fiction or fantasy stories um so it's just kind of my whole as long as I can remember um, mm. different different ages. I've read different things and it's always been something I loved. So it's something we you know, we it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast spectology with my friend Adrian, because both of us had that experience. We both kind of grew up with it and it kind of was always something that was important to us. And when uh, it was Adrian's idea, when Adrian realized, oh, yeah, like, why don't we could actually do a podcast and it could be like this and so on. I was, uh, you know, it was it was like a I thought it was a terrific idea. Right. That's interesting. Do you have like a, a foundational author, like a first sci-fi author you really were into or not so much? Maybe Isaac Asimov. Okay. And ironically enough, Foundation, the Foundation books. Ah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there's other stuff that I read as a kid, definitely. Um, but I think that I, I really liked Isaac Asimov when I was little. I read mm. his autobiography when I was a kid. <laughs> which is like a weird thing to do but i just thought he was so cool and interesting when i was little and um he wrote so many books in his life and he wrote about a lot of things other than science fiction actually he wrote a lot of nonfiction. when i was young i read his he has this book that's you know how like sometimes people write these like popular science books that are like a history of the universe or something he has one of those mm. i oh, read cool. that and i just read a lot of his books his robot books his foundation books his uh other stories um yeah. Can you tell me, the one I read by him, I don't remember the name, it's about connections with another world where people are like amoebas or something. Half the book is about the human the human end and the other half is about these like cell type creatures who have like three genders. Do you remember that? Oh man, I, I don't. I don't, but... Uh, I'm probably horrible. It's been a while since I read some it. of his stuff. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, I think I'll he's, probably he's, edit that question out. No, it's all right. I um, I uh, I also should mention I I totally love Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm. Um, I read The Wizard of Earthsea, which is not really science fiction, but um, it's like a, it's fantasy, I suppose. Um, mm. it's all speculative fiction, I guess, in some sense. But I read that when I was little, and um, she. I think is just a genius, and like everything she touches is great. And I think Isaac Asimov has this property that a lot of his work doesn't hold up as well when you get older some of it does but some mm. of it doesn't it's just it's not that it's right. like super you know i don't know i mean it just has there's different problems with different stories and, and, and certain things 
Okay. But Ursula K. Le Guin, I think, I actually just appreciate her more and more as I get older. And mm. uh, so, yeah, she's like a, a another amazing, like, you know, very influential figure to me. I can I can say as a kid, uh, I, I had a Wizard of Earthsea that I was given along with a bunch of other uh, books for kid. Well, books marketed for kids of all sorts of different genres. And I, this was me fresh out of like Harry Potter and that whole wave of books. And Wizard of Earthsea, I think I finished it, but I really wasn't that into it. And then I reread that whole series just a year or two ago as an adult. And I was like, yeah, this is actually pretty good. But I feel like those, those for me anyway, they worked better as a mature adult than as a kid. Because they're yeah. they avoid a lot of like the flash and bang excitement. So in that way, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you mean. I think you're right. I mean, I I more or less had the same experience when I was when I was little. I thought it was sort of interesting and like it made me feel feelings, you know. Mm. But but I only as an adult do I sort of actually. It's been a while since I reread them, and I really want to do that again because I feel like I usually never reread things. But her work is stuff I want to because I feel like I'll get something new out of it. Mm-hmm. I saw a thing um, when I was doing my Folding Beijing episode. I saw Goodreads had a book by her that looked like it might be in English. It had reviews in English, but I think it's only been translated in, obviously in Chinese, but I think it's in German or French or something. I think German. And it's a story where it says like there's a half of humanity or something have made a colony on Mars. Earth is Earth has the remainder of the population. One is capitalist, one is socialist. And I thought, wait a minute, hang on. This is... <laughs> This is the dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. So I've not looked into that more and maybe can't unless I learn German or Chinese. But have you heard anything about that book? About the dispossessed? Or no, about, about uh, Hao Jinfan's version. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, no, no. I, I um, Sorry, I, I was... Yeah, I, I, I yeah. haven't. And I, I really... I, she's another uh, modern author who I, I think is just amazing. I think Folding Beijing is an incredible story. and uh, But mm. I actually haven't... That's the only story of hers that I've read. And I really need to read Same. more of her. Uh, I'm about to read the second... My second... Hao Jinfang story as I'm working through Broken Stars. But yeah, um, I might message you about that later. Maybe the, the Goodreads link to the thing for the German version. Yeah, please do. Yeah, it's, it's certainly intriguing because I don't think any of the comments mentioned um, The Dispossessed, which left me there, you know, kind of staring at the computer screen going, guys, guys, you, you. but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't leave a comment. Uh, I'll let them figure that out for themselves. Um, so I've asked you about your foundation in sci-fi as a whole how about your first chinese sci-fi what was the the first chinese sci-fi that you came across oh that's actually that's a tough one i i'm not sure i think it might have been something in the new culture movement um because just because i i started reading chinese literature in university and i read a lot of different things um in different genres that were just assigned to me um right and i i seem to remember there was one that was about space travel and i don't remember but to be honest i don't really remember and uh, you know at some point after that um i sort of started looking around for different things and, and i found some stories here and there and and then you know when i was uh when i was a student in china at one point i um i was taking uh, i don't remember see a lot of these details escape me but in any case i i don't remember if it was for class or not but i got this reader it's like a university reader Mm-hmm. Uh, for Chinese students, for Chinese students who are studying like literature, and that book was just like a treasure trove. It has all these different kinds of stories, and it has a bunch of translations of. It has a translation of uh, Victor Hugo short story. It has a translation of Borges into Chinese. Mm. 
and like it has um a bunch of strange chinese stories and i and then i i got really into older chinese stories stuff from like these sort of old anthologies of different kinds of writing some of them very old some of them medieval some of them sort of more recent like like uh, strange tales from chinese studio and and um i sort of uh read a lot of those and um I actually read a lot more of that kind of stuff before I sort of started reading more modern stuff only only a little bit later. Uh, and then like, you know, at some point in the last few years, I started getting more into Chinese science fiction through like what I try to do is is sort of um, find like find whoever I can find who I think sounds interesting and then like look into that author. I try to do it kind mm. of like that. Um, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have like a, a more sort of clear kind of origin okay. story there. Uh, well, I think it begs another question. Uh, when did you first uh, read Three Body? If you've read that. I've actually not read Three Body, <gasps> which is oh astonishing. I know the, so I, um, I've been meaning to read it in Chinese and that is I the see. kind of problem that I have because it'll take me a while to read it in Chinese just because right. I read Chinese much more slowly than I read English. And so I keep like putting it off because it's sort of a more of a commitment, like <laughs> which yeah, it's sucks. A trilogy, and yeah. the, it's like Harry Potter. The, I think the books get bigger and bigger. Yeah, you know, I I pick them up and I have them, and I just need to actually do it. So I, I started the first one, you know, mm. but it it's a uh, it's it's a it's a commitment. So <laughs> it is I need to actually do that. I think when I um when I first read them, it was well actually the only time I've read them, it was in an ebook form. So read the first one very quickly, second one a little bit longer, and then uh, the start of the third one, I have no physical book in front of me, so I had no idea what a monster it was, <laughs> but it's fine. I was enjoying it so much, and I was like, oh, good, more book. Great, it'll never end. And then, of course, finally yeah. it does. Um, so here's a question that follows on from that. Um, do you have plans to cover more Chinese sci-fi on your show, Spectology? Absolutely. Definitely we want to do that. Um there's so much out there. It's so fun for us to do. Uh, Adrian and I are both really interested in it. We um, we try really hard to to kind of pick a wide range of things, um, especially stuff that we think that our readers might really like, but that they might not have heard of before. So we try to shy away from the most well-known stuff that's already super famous. Hmm. You know, so you probably won't ever see us doing like the Expanse books, you know, or right. or um or like an Alistair Alistair Reynolds book or like a something like that. Um, although, you know, every now and then, so for instance, this December, we're doing a special um, kind of uh, special one-off uh, month of classic sci-fi books where we're doing older books, which we usually do newer books. But, um, and in, among those are be, will, will be a couple that that, uh, that people will have heard of, definitely. There's an Arthur C. Clarke book, for example, and a Samuel Delaney book, and people have probably heard of those guys if they're science fiction fans. But mm -hmm. um, in general, we try to do uh, a wide range of things, and so we'll de we're definitely going to be trying to cover more China stuff, mm. um, you know, among the other range of things we want to do. And, you know, if, uh, if you have any suggestions, send them my way. Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> have you read Invisible Planets or Broken Stars? Yes, yes. Both, right. Um, yeah, um, well, I guess the, the kind of slightly hidden third book, not that it's published by the same people, but the, um, if you're willing to splash a bit of cash, there's also that um, uh, the Reincarnated Giant anthology. It's a lot more of the same, but it's by lots of different stories by lots of different translators, but it's a similar range of authors. That one's 
it's on Amazon and the publisher is I think the China uh, China University Press of uh, of the Chinese University in Hong Kong. There could be more gold yeah. in there for you. I definitely want to check that book out. I have not read that one, and I, I, I as soon as you mentioned it earlier in this episode, I kind of like took note because yeah. I want to. That's definitely something I want to check out. But uh, even Invisible Planets or uh, Broken Stars are those are things that we could conceivably do. Mm. Um, it might be a few months before we before we do another Chinese sci-fi book, just because um, this past year we we've done not only Waste Tide, but we also did uh, it's not Chinese, but um, we did a, a book of short stories. Um, already so it might be a bit before we do another book of short stories okay makes sense uh, for similar reasons to you uh, wanting to avoid stuff that already has a lot has had a lot of coverage that's why i haven't tried to do a three body problem episode mm-hmm. not that it's vastly well known in in sci-fi but um for chinese books there's already other podcasts that have done that book so i am yeah. going to do Liu Cixin, but it'll be one of his short stories i think that's a great idea yeah there's a clue for listeners who haven't seen. I did a Twitter post where I put uh, one Chinese character, one emoji for all the upcoming episodes. Uh, so for this one, we did not have our episode picked yet, so there's nothing. But for all the other ones, uh, there are <laughs> clues, and I th- I'm quite pleased with them. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, smug. I'm smug about my Twitter posts. We've already talked about how your show works, so I'll skip that question. This is the very last question. Um, so when we were communicating before uh, this recording we both noted that we'd missed a chance to ask Chen Chiu Fan about anime influences in his book in Waste Tide so this is something I didn't talk about in my last episode but just just because I forgot to write it down in my questions for for Chiu Fan um so the stuff that made me think of influences from Japan in his book as probably as, as a younger Chinese sci-fi writer who's maybe has has got these influences in a way some of the older ones don't. There was a lot of mention of tentacles. Uh, <laughs> I, I won't go too deep on that, but there's a lot of tentacles in Waste Time. Uh, I shouldn't laugh because that's not like a funny part of the book. Uh, no, no. Uh, um, but in the context of this question, it's very funny. Um, and then there's a, your your co-host Adrian. He picked up on a reference to Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, there's a big mecha robot called Eva, and I think in the in Waste Hide it says the name of this robot or this mecha suit was taken from a popular anime. And if anyone's seen uh, Akira, the film, mm-hmm. or Neon Genesis, kind of the the power politics, the dystopian stuff, the magical powers. Um, oh no, what's her name? The girl. Um, Mimi. Mimi, yes, the magical kind of powers Mimi acquires. It's all kind of there in like a big soup. Um, did you have any, uh, did you spot any other things or do you have any thoughts that I've not given voice to about the anime influence in Waste Type? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think it's there. I, I wish, yeah, I, I, there's, there's a lot to, to cover here. I, I have a, I also have a, a very big interest in, um, in Japan and Japanese fiction and science fiction. And uh, we, uh, in another episode, we covered a Japanese, sci- a, a, an old classic of Japanese science fiction um, cool. called um, uh, 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights. Um, and uh, it's a terrific, terrific book that I love. Um, mm. But there's, there's so much... Um, there's so much there's so much there i think if you if you're interested like anime is like a great way to get into uh the japanese science fiction world which is like a very cool space where they have a lot of different 
kinds of ideas and and stories that you may not be able to find elsewhere. And, you know, it's great because anime, you know, people often just like with, you know, film anywhere, you know, people make anime out of novels sometimes, out of light novels, out of mm. comics, out of, you know, other sources or just out of nothing or it's original to the anime and like Evangelion is. But uh, but uh, so you can kind of really use anime as an entree into Japanese science fiction, I think. And and, mm. it, and it's popular everywhere. It's not just popular in English. Anime is incredibly big in China. It has been something, for a long time. Uh, something I did not expect before I went there. I didn't wasn't really expecting like the cuteness culture, kawaii culture. <laughs> yeah. But it's everywhere in China and I guess lots of countries near Japan. Much and it's more I feel like it's it's more normal there than it is yeah. here. Like when I was in school, I wasn't an anime kid, but you could spot the kids who were very easily. They were yeah. the misfits. Right. Whereas in China, like I suppose it is a bit of a nerd thing, but it's not it's very normalized, like the cuteness stuff. Yeah, I think it's almost like how it is in Japan, where, mm. you know, there are people who are sort of really into it or yeah. really into one in particular or really into like a lot of anime. But even people who aren't, there's probably like one or two they like. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Especially because there are anime about sports, there are anime about like super sort of you know mainstream kinds of kinds of stories um mm. and, uh, and those ones didn't reach the kids my age growing up on uk tv we just got like pokemon digimon fighting explosions yeah. and stuff yeah and then there's like the ones that are for children where there's like like doraemon is like an uh an, an, an anime for children it's very popular worldwide it's big in indonesia it's big in india it's you All know over bangkok in thailand yeah, it's it's huge. It's a huge, worldwide phenomenon, but it's sort of not really in America, and maybe it's not or, in the UK, the UK either. No, not at all. Yeah, no. yeah. So, uh, I mean, it is now, I guess, but when I was a kid, it wasn't. I don't remember it at mm. all. So there's these interesting kind of different different animes, different pop, different levels of popularity in different places thing. But yeah, I think it's all over waist tide, and I think especially cyberpunk. There's another one, uh, Ghost in the Shell. <gasps> Why did I not mention that? Yes. Yeah. I meant to oh. I meant to mention that myself, but that's another one from the '90s that uh, seems like a pretty obvious influence. <laughs> I mentioned that on a previous episode. Uh, it was the interview with Dylan Levi King, the translator, and it was on the similar topic of like um, looking at connections between China and its neighboring countries from the perspective of a Westerner, and like I don't know. Not really any, again, no deep thoughts, just, hmm, this is very interesting. Because obviously, like, being a European, there are lots of small countries, smallish countries next to each other. They're all kind of similar, and they have interplay between each other. And being an ignorant Westerner, you don't maybe really think about how other regions of the world do the exact same thing. The cultural dialogue between China and its neighbors, or Japan and its neighbors. Again, I have no... I have no question there. I have no deep thoughts. It's just <laughs> a recurring theme of this podcast because it's something me, the host, is intellectually tickled by. Yeah. Well, I think if people are listening to this podcast, they probably find you interesting. So that's oh, good. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah. On on that very nice compliment from you, uh, I'll probably wrap it up. It's We've been going quite a while now. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. Time flies and you're having fun. Exactly. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Matt. Um, do you want to plug uh, your podcast or anything else one last time before we say bye-bye? Sure. Yeah. I mean, mentioned a bunch, but Spectology, science mm. fiction podcast, book club podcast um, with me and my co-host, Adrian. Um, Adrian handles a lot of social media so that I don't have to. So we have a Twitter and, uh, you know, you can get, there's an, an email and our podcast is available on all kinds of 
podcast platforms all over the place. So uh, wherever you like to listen to it, you can find it. And uh, I hope you do so. There you go. Um, so on that note, thank you so much for being on the show, Matt. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Well, not not the next episode. That would be weird. <laughs> but um, welcome back on the future. That would be fab. Um, I'm sure more Chinese sci-fi or just more Chinese literature that's interesting to you might pop up. If if I end up doing these weird stories like the Su... Oh dear. Su... Pong, it can't be Pongling. Pu Songling. Pu Songling, yeah. <laughs> Pu Songling, yes. If I end up doing him, uh, I might zap you a message if that sounds fun. I would love to do That's a great book. And that would be a good one because I can do lots of wee stories and then I can have yourself and others. So yeah, it could be a winning strategy. Well, it's been an enormous pleasure. Um, I feel uh, like a bit a bit like the odd one out because um, you've had such uh, interesting and, and well-known uh, people involved in this space on the show already. Uh, like John Jovan or, or uh, many others. So I uh, thank you for uh, mm. inviting me. Well, you're the first podcaster who's been a guest, so they're probably jealous of your audio skills. <laughs> That's very funny if you knew how few of those I had. <laughs> or you, you got a good podcast voice as well, and you know not everyone's got one of those. Why? Thank you. Flattery will get you everywhere. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> On that <laughs> note, uh, I'm going to stop the recording. So, all in all, a really excellent chat there, I would say. Um, thank you so much again to Matt for being on the show. So, something I've looked up uh, following the conversation is that uh, Hao Jingfang book that I mentioned. Her kind of take, as it were, on Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. And it turns out that in August we had some exciting news about that particular uh, novel. It's going to find its way into English via a translation from Ken Leo. Uh, it seems like its old working English title had been uh, Stray Skies, which is a fairly literal translation of the original Chinese, although nice and alliterated. Uh, but the title it's going to be published under in English is Vagabonds, and you can already pre-order it uh, as a book, and an, a print book, and an e-book. I believe in the UK, I think, I think what's going to happen is UK and Worldwide Head of Zeus are publishing, except North America. There it will be Simon and Schuster, uh, not Tor from what I could gather. So it's another sign that Head of Zeus is really becoming the kind of Ken Leo slash Chinese sci-fi HQ. And they're kind of outpacing Tor in their dedication to being a publisher of Chinese sci-fi. Or at least that's my kind of... Um, I, I won't say pro UK. Not too fan. Not too big of a fan of the UK. But my my anti America takes the lead on everything. Uh, take on on that as as a publisher. Hope I'm not aggravating my North American listeners in saying that. Uh, I, I'm really waffling now. So let's just do the the final plugs. Um, do check out the show's Instagram at Church of Fick. Uh, my Twitter Angus likes words. I've been posting on that more than more than the Instagram recently, I should try and correct that. Uh, and of course, if you wish to materially support the show, you can do so via Patreon and get access to bonus content or as a one-off on Buy Me A Coffee, all links in the show notes. But of course, the most uh, powerful way in which you can help the show is by telling people who might like it. Tell your friends, tell your dog, tell your storytelling robot, tell the king, but you know, don't frustrate him by leaving a cliffhanger on whatever it is you're telling him. That would that would just be mean, very mean and very dramatic, which we can't be having. And um, yeah, that's what you can do. Um, until next episode, 再见. <laughs>